Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In recent weeks, we have seen outbreaks associated with nightclubs and other social gatherings, even in places where transmission had been suppressed. We must remember that most people are still susceptible to this virus. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard some words of warning from the head of the World Health Organization, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus. After weeks of focus on the economic aspects of the crisis, it feels like Europe is switching back to worrying about the health situation and the various measures that may go along with that, from quarantines to curfews. We'll discuss the coronavirus with our podcast panel in just a moment. And later in this episode, you'll hear from Evelyn Regner, a member of the European Parliament who's leading a push for gender balance at the top of EU institutions. We'll also catch up with an old friend of the podcast, Ryan Heath, to tell us about a new podcast series coming soon to your EU confidential feed. But first, here's a flavour of the growing concerns about the coronavirus around the continent. Let's be absolutely clear about what's happening among some of our European friends. I'm afraid you are starting to see, in some places, the signs of a second wave of the pandemic. This entwicklung is wirklich sehr beunruhigend. The average now, uh, as of today, uh, is around 279 new cases every day in Belgium, which is a huge surge in new cases. C'est aujourd'hui que la Belgique revient en arrière. On ne sort plus du confinement. On y remet un pied. Les courses tout seul. La bulle à 5. À Anvers, ce sera couvre-feu la nuit. Nous vous emmenons dans les rues d'Anvers qui étaient déjà fort calmes hier soir. So we could hear there that there's debate already about whether there's a second wave of the coronavirus in Europe. And while that may be up for debate, what doesn't seem to be up for debate is there's certainly a second wave of alarm about the coronavirus in Europe. So let's talk about that and other things with our podcast panel this week. Reem is in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello. And the perfect person to talk in a bit more depth about the coronavirus is also with us, Sarah Wheaton, our senior health reporter. Hi, Sarah. Howdy. So, I mean, let's start with the with the big one, Sarah, if you think you can tackle it. Uh, Boris Johnson says in parts of Europe there is a second wave. Have we have we got that far yet? Is this a second wave of COVID-19 that we're now facing? I don't know if I would call it a second wave. Uh, the way that some people at the WHO have said that that it's better to think about it is maybe a second peak or a second spike. It seems like we are definitely on the upward approach. But of course, this was predicted. This is what everybody said was going to happen when we came out of lockdown. And 
the thing that politicians and policymakers and health professionals were supposed to be doing during, during this time is getting ready for that inevitable resurgence. And they've said, we don't want to do a second full-fledged lockdown. And so we have to improve our testing. We have to improve our contact tracing, maybe do more kind of surgical lockdowns or efforts. Um, And this is what we will do to avoid a full-fledged lockdown. And so now this is the moment that we predicted. Let's see if they actually did what they were supposed to do in order to get ready. Right. And what are the signs, for example, in Paris at the moment, uh, Reem? Do the authorities seem ready? Is, you know, how's the kind of contact tracing and, and those various other measures that have been or, you know, were meant to be put in place across Europe to kind of deal with what, as Sarah says, was, was kind of seen as inevitable. Once you have more people moving around, travelling, there is obviously going to be at least an uptick. I think there's been the same kinds of issues with contact tracing in France that there has been pretty much everywhere. It's not exactly a resounding success. And just on a more basic level, uh, you know, people wearing masks is not something that has become, uh, you know, people are not 100% compliant with wearing masks, Mm. probably also because the government hasn't made it mandatory for people to wear masks on the street, but rather it's mandatory to wear it on the subway or uh, in shops. And they're starting to sort of review that. You're seeing sort of local cities now with uh, an uptick in their population numbers because of uh, tourists coming in, like especially in the south of France. Yeah, and this is, I mean, it was all tied in with tourism, right? We're starting to see particular, you know, um, hotspots, which on the surface at least look at least partly tied to people being in, in fairly kind of confined surroundings, partly as a as a result of tourism. And that's raising the spectre again of travel restrictions. I am hoping to go to Scotland on holiday next week, um, but I'm not sure I'm going to make it because this is happening kind of day by day that countries are reviewing uh, which countries uh, they will allow travellers in from. And if they allow them in, you know, what restrictions are going to be placed on them, including uh, quarantine self isolation etc you know Sarah do you think having followed this really through from the very beginning in terms of efforts to have a kind of Europe-wide common system of coordination on these things which definitely didn't seem to be in place the first time you know are we any further down that road this time does there seem to be more are we back to square one again we're not back to square one but I have been struck by the lack of apparent coordination. I mean, maybe there's some amazing dance going on behind the scenes, but I think this sort of uh, slapdash imposition of new travel restrictions is a sign that people are not really working together. And um, one of our colleagues, uh, Jakob Hanka, who's actually in uh, Catalonia right now, he just um, published a statement from a Catalonian official saying that these travel barriers that are being put up are the equivalent of like tourism protectionism. So once again, we're sort of seeing measures being cast in economic language when they may have been done from a public health perspective. So I am underwhelmed by the level of coordination that's happening so far. Right. It does seem to be increasing. It's, there's, there's economic arguments coming to the fore and also just political ones. You're, you're basically seeing Spain, Pedro Sanchez in particular, having a pop at the Brits and, and, and Boris Johnson. And just very different approaches, as we were saying also, in that some, some countries are trying to be more nuanced to say, well, if you're coming from this particular place in that country... That place is a hot spot, therefore we're going to ask you to self-isolate, go into quarantine or whatever. 
If you're coming from other parts of that country that have much um, lower infection rates then or you know lower number of cases, then that's okay. But then we're seeing other countries take much more of a kind of carte blanche approach, which you know has a certain sense as well in that you can't really tell. People can obviously get around these restrictions, travel to another airport and say they weren't in that particular region when they were. So, but again, what's you know, you can see the pluses and minuses to each approach, but what's clear is they're not consistent. Reem, you wanted to jump in. Yeah, I was struck as this morning, uh, France's new junior minister for European affairs, Clément Boone, uh, he was very clearly uh, maintaining the line that France has taken, to be honest, from the beginning since March, which is that there should be complete coordination among European Union uh, member states and also Schengen zone uh, states, and there should be no drastic measures or complete border closures, at least, and most importantly, not unilateral uh, complete border closures. And he gave the example of uh, the French authorities basically putting out a travel advisory only pertaining to Catalonia and saying that, uh, you know, sort of advising against going to Catalonia, but not putting out a complete blanket ban on traveling to Spain. And I just, maybe I'm too skeptical, but I just have a hard time seeing how we avoid uh, being back in the same situation we were in in March and April when we started seeing various countries within the EU and Schengen zones sort of taking their own unilateral decisions uh, and making, you know, making things harder for everyone. And it does. There is a, a real element of déjà vu where, where some of the same tension seem to be resurfacing. Uh, one of our reporters, uh, Hans von der Burkhardt, was just pointing out to me that Luxembourg is again uh, furious at Germany, which was another kind of feature of the previous, you know, spike in the crisis where uh, Luxembourg felt they were very kind of unfairly treated and borders were closed when they didn't need to be. And now the Robert Koch Institute in Germany, uh, you know, which tracks this stuff, is responsible for this stuff with the federal government, has basically put Luxembourg on a high risk list. And once again, the, the Luxembourgers are, are up in arms. So really, you know, it feels like once again, as when we talked about this before, and uh, Sarah, when you were uh, regularly with us, when we were doing the, the pop up podcast on a Monday, you know, ultimately, the only way out of this eventually is a vaccine feels like. So where do we stand uh, with that? Are we any closer to, you know, having the prospect of a vaccine that might, you know, allow us to get back to some kind of normality in the long term? Well, I, I will address that. But if I could just push back a little bit, actually, on the on the previous discussion, um, as far as this idea that some countries are being unfairly maligned, um, there is sort of an argument to that. And the idea that the problem is only going to be people who are lying about which region they're going to, uh, that's not necessarily the case either. It may indeed actually make sense to close off all of some countries or to be more open-minded about which countries people can travel to, because a lot of this comes down to how well public health authorities are conducting testing. And Luxembourg does have very high numbers, but that's because Luxembourg is trying to test almost everybody. And so they've ended up on the red zones of like everybody's list. Whereas even in Belgium, Antwerp is held up as sort of the the bad child that's having the highest rates. And Brussels, the Brussels region seems to be doing really well, but there are actually some epidemiologists who think that Brussels is just not doing a good job of testing. So it may indeed 
indeed be you and I who are the super spreaders. I'm hoping to go to Berlin next week. Um, we'll see what sort of havoc I unintentionally wreak there. But, um, okay. but uh, well, just occasionally members of my family listen to this podcast who will now not be welcoming me into their homes. But thank you. Um, probably <laughs> for the best anyway. Um, but Sarah, what about vaccines? This is what we're all hanging on for. What do you think? Right. So there, there is progress. There have been several vaccines that have shown that they at least are producing an immune response. So you have the two questions about vaccines. You have, will we have a vaccine that works? And then the other question is, will we be able to get access to the vaccine that works? And one thing that we're tracking now is there's a global race among kind of rich countries or rich, rich clusters of countries to try to purchase in advance vaccines. And so far, the European Union is really kind of behind. If we think of its main competitors as the United States and the United Kingdom, uh, the UK, just as we're recording this now, has secured a third deal to have guaranteed access to an experimental vaccine. Uh, the EU, uh, the commission is is working on negotiating with various companies. I think they're in negotiations with um, with five or six companies. And so far, they have not been very successful in actually securing those deals. The U.S. also has had success. And then the EU has also said that they're going to ensure access for poor countries. Um, But with all its resources, the EU hasn't quite pulled that off for itself yet. And we know that Ursula von der Leyen predicted that there could be a vaccine on the market in the fall of this year. I mean, is that timeline looking remotely realistic? No, and I think even she has now um, quietly back down. She didn't issue a correction, but she's made some other comments since then. Again, we are seeing some positive things coming out of clinical trials and people are expecting that maybe, you know, kind of some brave groups of health workers could be able to start getting these vaccines early next year. But as far as um, something on the market for you, your kids going back to school, something like that, no. Mm. Okay, well, I was hoping to uh, end on an upbeat note, but well, it's kind of upbeat. At least there's progress being made and we are all going on holiday, although in some cases we may not be going uh, very far. Is this, by the way, our last recording? This is the last one before our vacation, our little uh, podcast holiday, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I, I will wish all of you, uh, including our uh, long-suffering producer, Christina, <laughs> who once again has to boil down this panel into something about half its length, a uh, very uh, bonne vacances, and uh, we will be back with our listeners uh, in mid-August. But uh, Sarah, Reem, thanks very much for now. Thank you, and enjoy the summer. Thanks for having me. Now, a few weeks ago, our producer Christina Gonzalez and Politico's European Parliament reporter Maya de la Baume sat down with Evelyn Regner. She's a member of the European Parliament from Austria's Social Democrats, and she's also the chair of the Parliament's Committee on Women's Rights and Gender Equality. And Christina and Maya spoke with her just after a vote in the Parliament put a man in charge of the European Banking Authority. You'll hear why Regner believes that's problematic and how she's rallied members from multiple political groups to support women candidates for top roles in EU institutions. But the first voice you'll hear is Maya's. The vote yesterday was an interesting one. The European Parliament voted in favour of a male candidate to head one of the big EU financial institutions called the European Banking Authority, EBA. Uh, His name is François-Louis Michaud. What is interesting for us is you, Evelyn, 
have spearheaded a campaign for the past weeks or months to try to force the EBA to present one male candidate and a woman candidate. Yesterday, unfortunately, this didn't happen. Could you walk us through a little bit mm -hmm. your campaign and what mm -hmm. you've done in the past weeks? Yes, with pleasure. So I'm disappointed about the result, I have to say. I really thought we could make it. And it was, I mean, it was an interesting result because uh, it was not that clear uh, from the beginning on. So there was, there was really uh, a chance that uh, we could uh, reject Mr. Uh, Michaud. But I really would like to say it's not about the candidate, Mr. Michaud. It's about the procedure. It's about uh, the way candidates get nominated. Maybe for our listeners who haven't followed this, yes. can you explain a bit about the procedure going yes. back a few months in the committee and mm -hmm. the committee's vote actually to reject the candidate? And yet here we are. Ultimately, he was approved by the full parliament. So maybe you can walk yes. us through that. Yes. So the Euro the EBA, the European Banking Authority, was created uh, after the, the, the big financial crisis. And here we have an institution that is so important really to control and to be supervisor of the banks. So that was really an absolutely important conclusion. Then, of course, you need also to have a procedure how the director, how the executive director right now voted on will be chosen. And here we are at the problematic situation. We have a procedure that is uh, right now a sort of gentleman's agreement, yeah, that uh, there is a list we get from a supervisory board where the members are coming from the member states. And here you get a list of the candidates. And we as European Parliament always ask, we need uh, really a balance, the diverse picture. And here we had hearings in the European Parliament. And in the first hearing, the Parliament, the Econ Committee, that is the responsible one, made a shortlist, the first a woman, the second a man, the third a man. This shortlist on recommendation was presented to the supervisory board. And then there comes the legal step. The supervisory board took from this one candidate that was the male and presented him as the one, as the proposal, the official proposal from the supervisory board. We rejected this candidate in December. So again, The whole thing started and what was happening. Then they chose the second man that was on the uh, three names list and not the number one woman and presented us. They could have also said, we present you the man and the woman. Please, Parliament, what's your opinion? They just It was a provocation. It was really a provocation of the European Parliament. So it was really non-respect and also, again, not gender equality. We have already so many of these institutions and all men, men, men. It's always the same. We all know this picture that we see Madame Lagarde sitting there and around her, it's just men, men, men. Why? I mean, the whole procedure when electing and choosing a candidate was concerning the qualifications criteria, really indirectly excluding women. That's the story. And secondly, the European Parliament, with, with the recommendation we did, number one, a woman, was not respected. And this was the, the background situation. What do I mean with the qualifications uh, uh, requirements? In the beginning, when the whole procedure started, they, there was also an experience in the sector 
of 20 years. So we are dealing with gender equality difficulties and that we should uh, uh, choose among those fantastic women that are doing a great job. But when you do criteria, just a very restricted group of people can fulfill then you do that on purpose in order to exclude. So then later on, because we criticized that it was reduced to 12 years, you can do a lot with these descriptions. And here we really have to, to revise and to improve the whole procedure. This is the story where we have to change it, because otherwise it will happen again and again and again. Some people would, for example, argue that mm. we shouldn't necessarily be considering people based on gender, but perhaps just their qualifications. And how do you respond when people present that argument to you? That's exactly what we want. That's exactly what we want on qualifications. We want that the main quarter doesn't exist anymore. So the, when you take the Women on Boards Directive, we decided yeah, already more than seven years ago, we decided quite quickly and said, we want objective criteria. That's it, what we want. We want those being the best qualified, really getting the jobs in top positions of enterprises, uh, having the, uh, the, the chance to, to enter in the political and in the economy's world, because right now it's just the other way around. It's a boys' club, and one always chooses in those boards, those being a little bit sim similar. So with this Women on Boards report, uh, uh, board directive, we ask for objective procedures, for objective criteria that doesn't exist right now. And therefore, we also know only binding quota only something binding changes the situation. It's a power question, existing stereotypes since mankind exists, and therefore we need those quota because nobody, and especially a white middle-aged man who know the system, give up power. It's a simple power question. About the vote yesterday, how do you see, is there a change of mentality that you see coming? Mm -hmm. Because the parliament vote voted down on this candidate. So what does it say about the parliament itself? Yeah, but in other times, I just tell you, um, it voted it down. Yes, um, I'm disappointed. But it's already a progress. I just tell you, it's a huge progress because this topic becomes really an important topic when we talk about financial institutions, when we talk about candidates for the European Court of Auditors, and when we talk about uh, all these financial investment bank stuff, so this classic uh, main stuff, yeah, it is an issue and it is already a big uh, progress. So normally it's always, um, it was always in fields when you talk about social questions, when you talk about uh, minority questions, that you also talk about this uh, gender aspect. But it arrived, it really arrived at people who never ever uh, were aware, yeah? who never ever opened their eyes that one could think that this is uh, an important question of good quality decisions. So it's really huge progress. We didn't succeed on this vote, but it really, it really was a topic in all political groups. So how many more... Uh, changes should be made? How many more efforts you should make? Because I'm just reminding maybe mm. also those who listen to us that you in the past months have been very forceful in sending letters to the EBA, asking them to change their system and to have one can email and female candidate. So you've done a lot. 
what more should be done? Mm. Those institutions, they are not only aware, they are really doing already a lot within the institutions. And this is great. Yeah, this is great. And I would like to underline, I appreciate that. And uh, it's good. One problem is where we really have to work on, that's what I said before, to work on those structures who decide who comes into these institutions. And those supervi uh, the board of supervisors, they are from the member states. So somehow those being on the breaks are representatives normally from the member states. Yeah. So the European Banking Authority can only work and do something with those people being there. But first of all, they have to come there. And the question is about the access. So this has to be improved. And then it's always the same, binding quota. Without binding quota, you, we arrived there in 108 years. Somehow we don't want to wait anymore. We're living in the 21st century. It's ridiculous. That was Evelyn Regner speaking to Politico's Christina Gonzalez and Maya Dillabom. Now, before we go, let's talk about the US elections and a new pop-up podcast series coming your way starting next month. So joining us now, uh, old friend of the podcast, original host uh, from New York City, it's Ryan Heath. Hi, Ryan. Hey, Andrew. How's it going? Good, thanks. Yeah, so we're looking forward to you bringing us an extra podcast each week focused on the US presidential election and the other elections to the Senate and House as well, of course. But the presidential election is the big one. So just in preparation for that, give us a quick uh, sense of where things stand. What's the state of the race right now? It is not looking good for Donald Trump and the Republicans. Now, we know that Hillary Clinton had large leads at various points in 2016, but what's different about this year is that Trump is consistently behind in almost all of the battleground states. Ohio is really the only one where he has had a regular lead or been even with Biden, and he's very far behind in national polling. And then you look at the underlying issues, things like how the COVID pandemic is being handled, the state of the economy, it just does not look good for Donald Trump. So he is in a really rough patch right now and he doesn't have any of his go-to tactics like his huge rallies or even his own party convention next month that he can fall back on to get things juiced up. Right, because they're not the the convention is a victim of of the virus. So let's have a look at this. One of the things you'll be doing in the podcast is combining that kind of insider knowledge that we have uh, from Politico in the US with a kind of outsider's perspective, trying to figure out what this election campaign and the potential result could mean for the rest of the world, for Europe especially. Um, Look at the two scenarios, a, a Trump a second term or a Biden a first term as president. You know, how do you see those playing out? Uh, how different would they be? You know, what should Europe expect from one and from the other? I think they will be quite distinct, but not necessarily in the way that everyone is expecting. So what we've seen from the Trump administration this year is, is it's been willing to go further than ever in challenging orthodoxy. So this idea that eight years of Trump is very different from four years of Trump, that it really would see the potential breakdown of a number of international institutions, that some of the things that Trump has been restrained from doing either by Congress or what conventions he's been willing to abide by, 
way. That goes out the window in a second term. Then with Biden, I think people need to temper their expectations in the sense that he won't automatically make Europe his new best friend. It doesn't mean that the US is going to catch up to Europe in thinking on climate and sustainability overnight. But what Biden really is, is an institutionalist. So he is someone who respects processes and multilateral forums. And so the US of course, uh, will still live by American exceptionalism to the extent that it thinks it can get away with, but it will be doing it in a different context if Biden is elected. Right. And um, how much of a role so far has kind of foreign policy played in the campaign or or is this all going to be super domestic? There hasn't been a huge amount of direct discussion of foreign policy, but it is one of the the underlying themes that that can't be avoided. So if you think about something like China, I think China, rather than transatlantic relations, will really be a flashpoint going forward. And then, of course, the COVID pandemic uh, does bring a sense of shame to some Americans because there is a growing realization that the US hasn't performed very well by global and international standards. Now, sometimes that generates a backlash and and Americans insist on doing it the American way and they don't want to hear about how others are going or other ways that you might solve a problem. But there is certainly that kind of suburban middle ground who want to be protected from the chaos of the world and that's what Trump promised in 2016 and it seems more and more of them are thinking, well, maybe Mr Trump brings the chaos rather than solves the chaos. Okay, well, we'll see how it all uh, plays out and follow it week by week. And starting in mid-August, in fact, after our holiday break, the first Tuesday after our holiday break, you'll be back with the first of those uh, episodes, Ryan. Do you remember already what you're going to be focusing on then? I know there's a master plan. I'm fired up and ready to go into the Democratic Convention, which is in theory anchored in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the real big Uh, mess up of the Clinton campaign in 2016, a state they should have won and they're now desperate to win back again. But of course, because of the pandemic, there is a limit of 300 people in that convention hall, not the usual 50,000 that descend upon a city. So a lot of this is going to be happening via Zoom calls in basements around the country, but we will be there both in Wisconsin and in those Zoom calls around America to, to tell you what's really happening. Great. Look forward to it. Thanks very much, Ryan. Thanks, Andrew. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. As we mentioned, we'll be taking a two-week summer break, but we'll return in mid-August with not one but two podcasts. On Tuesday, August the 18th, we'll bring you the first Campaign Confidential, and we'll be back with EU Confidential on Thursday, August the 20th. In the meantime, if you miss us too much, feel free to dive into our archive. We have more than 160 episodes to choose from. You could listen back to an interview with a newsmaker or just have fun checking whether anything we said on the podcast panel proved to be particularly prescient or hopelessly off the mark. We know it's not holidays as usual this year, but we hope you all manage to get some sort of break. I think we've all earned it. In the meantime, we hope too that you will stay well and we look forward to talking to you again in a couple of weeks. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.